This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we continue our look at global education policy. Last week, I spoke with Andy Green about social cohesion, one of the two main pillars found in most, if not all, of education policies worldwide. The second pillar, as Professor Green pointed out, is education for economic development. This global policy of education has recently manifested in many countries through various practices and processes of educational privatization. With me today is Tony Verger to talk about the global diffusion of education privatization, not as a global education policy per se, but as a set of processes through which private actors participate more actively in a range of education activities that have traditionally been the responsibilities of the state. In this sense, privatization directly impacts education policy. Not only is Tony a co-editor of the Handbook of Global Education Policy, but he is also a co-author of a new book entitled The Privatization of Education, A Political Economy of Global Education Reform. In our talk today, Tony discusses his book on education privatization, outlining the factors driving its spread globally. Tony Berger is a researcher in the Department of Sociology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. He will join Andy Green, Bob Lingard, and Karen Mundy on December 12th for a public webinar focused on global education policy. You can visit freshedpodcast.com for more details about the event. Tony Verger, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will. Give us an idea of the reach of educational privatization around the world. Well, education privatization is uh, increasing in, in quantitative terms. If you look at the expansion of uh, uh, enrollment in private schools, according to different regions, you can see how in all world regions, uh, there is a, an important increase, uh, especially in Latin America, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, North Africa. The numbers are, are quite impressive, but I would say that it's also um, important in qualitative terms, in the sense that education privatization and what should be the role of uh, private actors in education systems is today at the center of uh, global education reform debates. So how would you actually define educational privatization? Well, generally speaking, education privatization would be a process uh, through which private actors play an increasing role in different uh, governance activities of the educational system, whether it's the ownership, uh, provision, financing, regulation, and, and so on. But I also find useful the distinction that is quite famous now, done by Ball and Udell, that they differentiate between exogenous and endogenous privatization, with exogenous privatization being um, the openness of, of the education systems to the role of private actors, but endogenous privatization um, is, um, is quite different in the sense that means that the public uh, sector can also behave like, like the private like the private sector. So endogenous privatization would be uh, the importation of techniques, values from the private sector, sometimes for profit sector, into the way public schools are organized. 
I think that this distinction is very useful, but also we should take into account how these two types of uh, education privatization um, somehow fit each other, because in a more exogenously privatized education system with more private actors providing education, it's probably true that also public operators will be forced to engage in competition dynamics and will have to import, like let's say, marketing or managerial uh, techniques from, from the private sector. So in, in your new book um, that you've co-written, you really look around the world at different practices of educational privatization. Can you just give us a, um, a few of the most poignant examples of like the, the various extremes that, that we see in the, the phenomenon of educational privatization? Right. Well, in this book that I, I did with uh, Clara von de and Adrián Zancajo that has been published by Teachers College Press, we really wanted to, uh, to unpack the global phenomenon of education privatization. Education privatization in, in the literature is usually associated to neoliberal reforms in the Anglo-Saxon world um, because basically um, there is uh, lots of pieces of research uh, analyzing the reforms in the UK, in the, in the US. But we really wanted to, to introduce complexity to, to the policy processes behind uh, education privatization and we wanted to show how diverse uh, is this phenomenon somehow. And what, what we did was a systematic review of, uh, of the literature, which is a methodology that is very useful to, to produce new knowledge without having to produce new empirical case, case studies. And we basically uh, reviewed more than 200 pieces of research and they allowed to, to, to understand how education privatization happens through, through very different political and policy processes uh, worldwide and in a way that it goes beyond this um, neoliberal approach to uh, educational reform. So what's amazing, so you mentioned earlier that you, know, you see this phenomena in Latin America and Southeast Asia and in North Africa, but also in countries like Australia and America and Hong Kong. Um, so these are such diverse countries, and yet they are following a similar set of policies, maybe not a similar set of practices, but what, what you're grouping in, into as educational privatization. What is driving this growth? Like, why are so many diverse countries experiencing educational privatization today? Well, there's no, uh, there's no a single, a single driver um, that is pushing for education privatization. Of course, they are like global drivers. Economic globalization is, is putting a lot of pressure in public budgets and some governments are being forced to, to introduce budget cuts in, in education or, or they are seduced by ideas like new public management in, in public sector reform. This is, let's say, a phenomenon that we could consider that is um, globalizing. Also at the level of the demand side, more and more families, especially middle class families, but also poor families, they really support ideas around a school choice and the values of consumerism uh, is more and more accepted the idea that education systems shouldn't be monolithic and, and more and more diversified. And of course, 
there are international organizations that are putting a lot of a lot of pressure for the global adoption of uh, educational reforms like charter schools, um, voucher schemes, and and so on. But beyond this, there are also national institutions, uh, national constituencies that are influencing the way um, education privatization happens and through which uh, policies is is happening. And just to give you an example, is very different the path toward privatization in in places like Chile and the United Kingdom that. Education privatization was like the consequence of a very drastic neoliberal structural reform of, of the state than in places like the Netherlands, Belgium or Spain that are countries where there is a long-standing uh, long tradition of private sector participation, usually uh, private schools from, from different uh, church orders that they were in the education system much earlier than the neoliberal uh, wave of reforms uh, started. You, you also talk about what you call soft drivers or the ideational drivers of privatization. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by this idea? Yeah, this is right. Um, because somehow in, in not only in education reform studies, also in public reform studies, there is an emphasis on the analysis of economic drivers, political drivers, that are drivers of a more material nature, that are easier to observe. But what we are witnessing today is that education privatization and other global education policy ideas are um, more and more promoted through semiotic strategies and, and construction of meaning, production of truth. What we are witnessing today is uh, how more and more governments, but also international organizations, need to legitimate their decisions, for instance, on the basis of evidence, what are so-called international good practices. So we really uh, support this idea in our book that these ideational factors are, are key to, to understand why education privatization happens in, in very different contexts, especially in, in advanced democracies where deliberation and um, other types of ideas, changes are, are important when it comes to take, when it comes to take uh, policy decisions. And what is more interesting um, for this approach in the case of education privatization is that there is no uh, evidence, uh, or at least a very conclusive evidence, supporting the, adop the adoption of education privatization. So the strategies of, let's say, think tanks, uh, philanthropic organizations, when it comes to convince to the public opinion, to policymakers, uh, about why is it good to adopt a charter school reform or a voucher reform, I think that these are very, very important uh, elements that should be observed in, in empirical research on the political economy of, of educational reform, basically. So what you're saying is that the, the evidence to show, say, private schools or privatized education is somehow better or achieves better outcomes than, say, public schooling, the, the, the evidence simply is not there to suggest that sort of um, finding. Yeah. And is it even worse than that in the sense that evidence is mixed when it comes to learning outcomes and generally speaking, once you take into account the socioeconomic status of, of students, 
the private sector is not doing uh, better than than the public sector in in most in most countries. But there is, um, I would say, that quite a conclusive evidence on the fact that more uh, private sector participation, especially when it's associated to market dynamics of school competition, is generating more and more educational inequalities, school segregation, problems of inclusion of students with educational needs. So I think that here the interesting phenomenon is that despite we know that somehow in some aspects educational privatization is is not producing good uh, social outcomes is uh, is still globalizing right and so that and that's where the production of truth comes in right so the all of these different actors that have some sort of interest in educational privatization help produce a truth that based on research evidence isn't necessarily the truth but policymakers see it as such yeah this is right sometimes they produce the the truth sometimes they just work as knowledge brokers and they select uh, those pieces of evidence that support their policy preferences. But yeah, this is absolutely the way it works in, in some countries. And so what's the role of researchers who many of or many of whom get consultancies with some of the global actors pushing privatization? Well, I think it depends on, on, the, on the country. The, the research community is, is more embedded in, in policy advocacy uh, movements. But sometimes I feel like the, the most influential researchers in the education privatization debate are not necessarily, uh, are not necessarily members of the academic community. They are usually, uh, let's say, members of international organizations like the World Bank or a broad range of, of think tanks that are very much influenced by, by partisan politics. In a way, um, those pieces of academic research that have been peer-reviewed are usually very cautious when it comes to recommend uh, education privatization solutions, and those uh, pieces of, of research that are more, let's say, more used by privatization advocates are, are usually reports or other types of uh, knowledge products that have, have not gone through, through, let's say, a more rigorous uh, quality assurance uh, process before their publication. So thinking more about this idea of the production of truth and these ideational factors driving educational privatization, when you did this enormous literature review of different studies around the world of educational privatization, did any stand out to you in particular of, you know, just an unbelievable case of uh, an ideational factor creating the circumstances by which privatization occurred? Yeah, probably the best example here is, uh, is the U.S. That is a country very well known for, for having many think tanks and lobby groups participating in the, in the political arena. And an outstanding number of uh, think tanks, uh, philanthropies that are very active, not only when it comes to, to support educational programs, but also to try to influence to try to influence education reform processes. So this is what has been called um, 
venture philanthropy. There is a very good example of this um, in, in the state of uh, Washington. Uh, Lubyansky and O produced a very nice uh, piece of research on this published in the last World Year Book of Education where they show how the, the Gates Foundation uh, supported uh, with millions of dollars the Gates Foundation and like-minded philanthropic organizations, they supported a campaign um, in favor of the adoption of uh, charter school legislation. And, well, here, this combination of material and ideational resources was key to understand why this um, referendum, in this case, this referendum on, on charter school uh, legislation was, was uh, accepted by, by a majority of, of the voters. So philanthropy and think tanks, they play a big role in producing this truth that privatization is, is quote-unquote good. Right. This is for North America, but if you uh, look at how education privatization debates are, are happening in, in, let's say, some low-income countries, you could see other type, types of factors coming, coming in. Of course, some, some philanthropic organizations are also there but also transnational corporations like Pearson, international aid agencies like the, like the UK aid agency, DFID, are also being very, very active in the promotion of private solutions in, in educational systems. Can you give an example of that in, in you know, developing contexts where these uh, aid agencies like DFID or USAID or... Um, what used to be called Australian aid, um, or the companies like Pearson, like how how do they actually go about? Well, I think that a very recent and good example is um, what's going on in Liberia now. There is a very ambitious educational reform going on, supported by by the aid community, but with the participation of uh, chains of uh, private schools like uh, Bridge international academies and the ARC Foundation uh, and this reform started when the president of Liberia and the, and the minister of education of, of Liberia they decided to, to solve the problems of their educational system by outsourcing uh, the, whole, uh, the whole system to, to a private company, in this case it was Bridge International Academies. In the end this, this won't be uh, this won't be such uh, a big movement in the sense that not all the schools will be, let's say, charterized, and not all the schools will be charterized to bridge. There will be also other other providers being involved. But I think that this is a, a very good example of a, a very uh, recent experiment with with privatization that has been, of course, the initial idea came apparently from from the national government, but a lot of uh, a lot of international actors have played a, a very important role when it comes to frame and to design the the final educational reform. I guess that that's the the issue that just gets me so I guess confused is why would the government of Liberia propose this as the solution? Right. I think that I, well, I was in a in a in a meeting or organized by the Open Society Foundations, uh, where there was a, a debate about about this very recent uh, process, and people from the Ministry of Education in Liberia was 
was there. They basically say that they didn't have uh, control over the education system and that they didn't know what was uh, going on in their schools. So I think that they attributed uh, this uh, radical uh, decision to a sort of lack of control and administrative, administrative capacity. And, well, I think that the reason why the, the president took this decision is that he went to a visit to Uganda and visited there some uh, bridge academies uh, schools and he found that this was a very fascinating experience and that he would like to import the model. Interestingly, one month ago, the Washington Post announced that this type of bridge uh, schools are being challenged by the government of Uganda because they are not fulfilling the basic standards of, of quality that are established in, in, the, in the country legislation on, on education. So I think that this is also interesting to see as an example of how sometimes very weak ideas and policy solutions uh, travel. And, and I guess a similar question could be asked for a country like the UK or Australia. Um, like, why would governments embrace this logic of educational privatization? I mean, I understand in the Liberia case, if there's the, the lack of capacity of some sort, and you, you simply, there's this company that is basically saying, we'll fill the gap. And so I can see how that would be enticing. But what about other countries that you know, have, you know, many people pay taxes and there's lots of money in education um, and the state has historically run systems of education. Where is the motivation for policymakers to really embrace this idea of privatization? Yeah, there's no a single uh, rational when it comes to adopt education privatization reforms. And I think that the case of the UK that you just mentioned is, is a very good example of this. In the 80s, with the um, government of Margaret Thatcher. Um, they adopted educational uh, reforms promoting market solutions in, in a very ideological way and because they were convinced that the role of the private sector and competition was the way to organize um, all types of public services and it was also a way to not to be only more effective but also more efficient because in the context of the neoliberal doctrine uh, efficiency and reducing costs in, in the provision of public services is a, is a high priority. But in the, in the late 90s in the UK, there was a, a government from the Labour Party and somehow this government continued promoting this type of private solutions in, in education, but apparently for, for different reasons. So there were arguments of equity and arguments of modernization of the education system behind. So instead of the traditional neoliberal arguments, the, the government of Tony Blair continued somehow with a privatization agenda in education for, for drastically different reasons, but with very similar policy outcomes. Hmm. It's very fascinating. So it's it, that all different ideological kind of backgrounds and politics could support the same sort of policy that you're saying causes all sorts of, you know, bad outcomes like uh, segregation and inequality and oftentimes lower um, 
achievement scores than than students in public schools. But yet we have policymakers from the quote unquote left and the quote unquote right all arriving at similar policy solutions. Right. Yeah. What what we saw in our review is that in the eighties, uh, beginning of the nineties, partisan politics was a, a very important variable to understand why some countries did privatized education or, or not, with, of course, right-wing conservative governments supporting privatization and left-wing and social democratic governments supporting public uh, intervention. But in, in, the, in the 90s, there is a, an ideological movement in the context of uh, social democratic parties that is known as, as the third way that it made these parties to be closer to, to the ideas of new public management, private sector participation, not as a, not as a way to, let's say, to promote only efficiency and competition, but as, as a way to modernize, uh, to modernize educational systems and, and to give more um, these social democratic parties, they detected that some of their natural voters they were unhappy with this idea of monolithic public services and that they wanted more choice, more options. So they thought that by allowing some sort of public private sector participation in education, they would be responding to these new demands of, of the middle class. But as I said, I think that initially they, they were not thinking about privatizing in a very drastic way. But here again, we have a, a very good example in, in Sweden, uh, a country where the social democrats uh, thought that they had to reform and modernize public education in a way that would give more autonomy to schools, that would allow the private sector to operate. Social democrats were thinking about non-for-profit organizations, teachers associations, families organizing new types of schools with alternative uh, pedagogies and they created a, a regulatory system that made it easier for the conservative government that came after to, um, to let's say, approve a voucher system reform and what happened is that a big number of for-profit operators started participating in, in the educational system, especially in, in secondary education. So here you can see how uh, some initial reforms that are apparently innocent or they have good intentions behind can drastically uh, change because of other political and economic factors. So, you, I mean, it's such a good example because it you really show how complex this phenomenon of educational privatization is. And it, it's certainly not as simple as saying there's somehow this you know, singular idea that's spreading globally and everyone is adopting it. Um, it's much more complex than that. And, I, and that's what's so refreshing about your work. Yeah, that's it. Uh, actually, we want to challenge this idea about education, privatization, somehow promoting uh, policy convergence. I think that what we are witnessing is a sort of convergence in terms of outcomes. Let's say increasing enrollment in private schools globally, but the, the policies are not converging. The policies are very, very diverse, and also the trajectories behind these reforms are, are as diverse as, as diverse are the, the countries that are, and regions that are part of, of this very, very complex world. 
Right. It's it's like to understand it, you really have to dig into the historical context of these of these different governments to understand how these policies form the way they do. Right. Yeah. In in, in a way, I think that historical institutionalism is also very much behind our our main point in in this in this book and in the way that we see uh, educational reform happening globally. So we we've spent a lot a lot of time so far talking about um, how or the drivers of educational privatization around the world. I want to just kind of go on the flip side and and ask: Have there been um, resistance to the phenomenon of educational privatization? Of course, there are many resistance to educational privatization for the reasons I mentioned before, because it's usually um, a policy approach that promotes educational inequalities, educational segregation. It's also, it's also a policy approach that it doesn't help to, to support uh, teacher professionalism, and usually the private sector pays uh, less and, and worse to, to teachers, and this is why teacher unions are probably uh, the political actor that is more active when it comes to resist educational uh, reforms promoting privatization, of course, with a very big diversity of, of results. In some countries, teacher unions are very effective when it comes to, when it comes to stop education privatization or market uh, reforms. In some countries, unions are so strong that governments, they don't even dare to promote uh, education privatization. In the early 2000s, the, um, the Minister of Education in, in Colombia wanted to promote a very similar reform to the one in Chile with a very ambitious market voucher system, but she knew that this couldn't advance, so then she proposed a charter reform as a, as a second best. And of course, we also have examples of countries where the education privatization process has been uh, reversed, or at least some of the most emblematic programs of privatization has been closed down. Ontario, in the 90s, had a very ambitious uh, charter school program, and I would say that now the number of charter schools in, in Ontario is, is very, very, very limited. And uh, Chile, yeah, Chile, the, the most marketized education system in in the world is um, going today through uh, through a very ambitious education reform that is trying to through through decommodify the educational system. Although, of course, this is still a very open empirical question whether this will be possible or not, because I I really think that once uh, an education system has introduced uh, a big number of market logics, middle class. Uh, middle-class uh, groups are very happy with their school choice possibilities. Uh, the private sector is being organized as a very effective uh, lobby. It's, it's really difficult to, to reverse, but we will have to, to, to look at this education reform in Chile very, very closely to see whether this is true or not. And there are other countries that are less well-known, like Bolivia, where I think that is a, let's say, a global exception when it comes when it comes to these privatization trends. Because in the last in the last decade, the number of of private schools in in the Bolivian education system has been reduced uh, 
in a very in a very important way. So it seems like this this idea of the production of truth in these different locales is in like different forms of crystallization. Some truth seems harder to break than others. Um, but what do you think the future of, of educational privatization is going to be? Well, I think that I expect that we will see uh, even more divergence in terms of the fact that um, some empirical cases will demonstrate that uh, education privatization is not a global linear trend, that somehow it can be um, reversed. And I really think that um, this would be important to happen because of, uh, because of the fact that educational equity, um, according to me, this is my personal opinion, should be at the center of the structuration and organization of, of educational systems. So I really hope that the private sector has a more, um, more residual role when it comes to organize uh, education systems globally because I think that this is the way to promote not only educational equity but also educational excellence. But again, uh, I think that social scientists were not very, very good when it comes to predict the future. Uh, I think that is enough for us to try to explain what is, what is happening. But um, yeah, if I, have, if I had to guess or if I had to tell you how I see the future, yeah, could be with more public sector involvement. Well, Tony Verger, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you to you. Bye. Tony Verger is a researcher in the Department of Sociology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. He will participate in a webinar on global education policy on December 12th. Check out freshedpodcast.com for more details about the event. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straubhar, Eric Lehman, D. Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. If you've liked what you heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. And please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.